0: For a few weeks in early spring, the only sounds that I heard were those of songbirds and sirens. The country battled to protect the NHS, saved the lives of people struggling to breathe. The world was being forced to stop, pause and let the planet draw a collective breath. I'm Ros Miller, a mid-career medic who found herself disillusioned about healthcare in the UK long before the lockdown of 2020. Songbirds and Sirens is for anyone interested in the biggest challenges medics face today how to practice the basic tenets of being a good doctor, simply caring for people safely, while simultaneously delivering the latest medical advances in a world of rapidly changing technology and instant gratification. From the highlands of Scotland to the hidden doors of Harley Street, I have found two consistent things. One, medics don't wake up in the morning thinking, today I'm going to do a bad job. Exactly the opposite, we want to help people, to have the time to care for our patients, And to do our very best for them. And number two, patients, regardless of whether they are down and out or a dame, all crave exactly the same things. To be seen, to be heard, and to know that for a moment in time, at least someone cares. Songbirds and Sirens is the start of a conversation society needs to have with itself. For me, it's the chance to catch up with colleagues and some friends to find out how the last few months have changed their perspectives and influenced their values. What would you do if every day for the rest of your life you were given £86,400? Guaranteed. Like everything in life, that sounds too good to be true. There is a catch, and it's non-negotiable. If you don't use it, you lose it. Now the next day you will be given exactly the same amount of money, £86,400. Same rule, spend it that day, or at the end of the day, it's gone. Other than that, every day for the rest of your life, you will receive the money. If that really existed, you would buy that lottery ticket. If that was a contract, you would sign on the dotted line. If that was your return on investment, you'd become an angel investor in a heartbeat. If that was a cure for your pain... You'd give your consent. Everyone should be interested in finding out more. The reality is that only a tiny minority, the real top 1%, do. And this is the top 1%, not that group that appears in the Forbes or Times 100, though admittedly some of them are there. This unique group of individuals has done their due diligence, asked the right questions, and are completely satisfied that the deal is real. If you need something else to entice you over the line, there's a free scan guarantee. Everybody, everybody is eligible. Though this club is unique, it is also genuinely non-discriminatory. It really does not matter the colour of your skin, the shape of your body, or how you identify based on gender, culture or sexual orientation. There is no difference if you're a lawmaker or a rule-breaker, if you're a lowlife or a lord. The deal and the reward are exactly the same, £86,400 every day for the rest of your life, but you have to use it. A new decade brings new hope and a new resolve. For goal setters it's a stake in the ground on which to mark the start of something better. For me, Hogmanay had been really magical, a fantastic country house deep in Perthshire with the whole family who'd come together after a long, hard decade that had seen both success and failure, love and loss. New Year's resolutions were made. The end of February, following a business improvement course in central London, I felt optimistic that I'd finally found something that would help me carve out the next few years. That evening, I operated with one of my favourite anaesthetists at one of the top private hospitals in London. The bit that stood out for me was the most striking thing that I have seen in a very long time. Fear. And it was in the most unexpected of places. Over the last few months, I have had time to reflect on what that fear was. As a medic, I have trained for and seen tragedy and crisis, but there was something very different about this for most medics when a major incident like a fire or a car crash an explosion even a terrorist attack happens it happens outside the hospital patients are brought into our place of safety we fix them and then most of them go home what was different with this was that patients were bringing the danger into our place of safety and that we may take it home to our loved ones or worse we might not get home at all. That was what the fear was. And whilst we all knew what we would do and that we would step up and do our job, no question asked, some may, and have, paid for it with our lives. The last months have been devastating for some, harrowing for many and terrifying for all. The lockdown has created a completely new way of life, all with a backdrop of death and dying alone. Funerals have been without hugs for siblings and babies born with grandparents not able to cuddle them. Many businesses have failed. Others have reinvented and thrived. For some, it's been incredibly stressful and exhausting, but for many, it has also given time. Time to stop and reflect about who is important, to pause and to think about what is important. To consider how we've been living our lives, how we look after each other, and the planet. In an increasingly instant-access world, this moment in history has woken most of us up to the fact that our most valuable commodity is our time, and our most precious asset is ourselves, both of which we have either been giving away freely or abusing greatly. It is our time that is the lottery win. These 86,400 seconds that we are all given every day to use that disappear at the end of the day if we haven't. And they are redeposited every single new day, regardless of how we choose to spend them. This is how we are all born equal. We all have exactly the same amount of time each day and we can never get it back once it's spent. Like most people up and down the country and indeed around the world, I think of myself as having two aspects to my life. Work, which I spend with colleagues, individuals who I work with on a regular basis or get to catch up with periodically at conferences. And personal, family and friends. People I care about deeply, I'm sometimes frustrated by, and definitely take for granted that they will always be there. That day in late February, the and I did as we always did. When we'd see each other, we put the world to rights. But this time, it was different. And it was in her eyes that I saw fear. The first time I really became aware anything was going on was in early January. My partner works in industry and he'd mentioned that there was something going on with their supply chain. By February, he was tracking numbers of new cases And I must admit, I didn't really pay a lot of attention. But then the media started to report that cruise liners and the ski slopes of Europe were being affected. The first cases were appearing in the UK and then in Bonnie Scotland. Milan and Venice started to report being overcome. The UK realised that our turn was coming too. People started to panic by toilet roll and making home hand sanitiser from gin. My GP colleagues were starting to get inundated with phone calls which were being diverted to NHS 111, and airport car parks were now turned into testing centres. Bond got cancelled, Glastonbury's 50th anniversary got cancelled, everything got cancelled. This was serious. The World Health Organisation declared a global pandemic. Everyone who could came home as flights got cancelled and grounded. Where Brexit had divided, the country was now uniting to stay home, save lives and protect the NHS. Then the first deaths in the UK were registered. With fixtures and events cancelled, sports people and celebrities turned to doing their bit on social media to raise awareness. Lockdown was declared and an unprecedented £330 billion of cash was injected into the economy. The country was now on life support. A new group of workers emerged, key workers. So too did the stories of desperation start to appear. The vulnerable and the elderly were now being told on an almost early basis by the media that they were unlikely to get a ventilator. Those that could, offered Cam reassurance. In the blink of an eye, society continued to hold its collected breath to see if we really had flattened the curve, at least enough to give the scientists time to find a vaccine. New words and ways of life were appearing, homeschooling and furlough were the new norm. School leavers and students up and down the country stressed about exams, graduations were done by Zoom, and leavers' balls were cancelled. Joe Wicks kept parents sane as he got the nation's children fit. As we watched healthcare systems around the world become overwhelmed, the nation realised that the NHS must be protected at all costs. Companies devised systems and innovative ways to help and responded in their droves. The nation retrained and dressed up and did everything and pretty much about anything to boost morale. The Prime Minister and the Queen delivered unprecedented peacetime messages to the nation. This was now really serious. The death toll continued to rise. Key worker deaths were announced, each and every one loved and cherished by their own family. And for thousands there was heartache and despair. The Prime Minister was in intensive care. The combination of social distancing and isolation coupled with the trauma of grief had been reflected by an increasing number of mental health issues. But we were in this together and for 10 weeks the whole nation clapped every Thursday night. Surgeons clapped the cleaners, the porters, the admin staff and the doctors and nurses being most exposed in the high-risk COVID-19 wards and the intensive care units. Celebrities said a collective thank you on behalf of the nation. Individuals found ways to connect to the rest of the community through song. At Easter, Andrea Bocelli reminded us of the empty spaces and the stillness and the silence. Where Catherine Jenkins and Gary Barlow sang a duet, so would a father and daughter. And as if on cue, Gareth Malone trained his choir, as did NHS choirs up and down the country. The virtual wave of community was not just in song, it was also in music from Andrew Lloyd Webber to the Naval Cadets. It was in dance from the stars of Strictly to those by themselves around the world. People were finding novel ways to stay connected to each other. It was an art with people recreating famous paintings at home. Premier League footballers tried to lighten the nation's spirits with fancy footwork tricks with toilet rolls. Football fans were moving from supporting the beautiful game to supporting their beautiful community. Pretty much all sport had been cancelled. Football, the Six Nations, the Grand Prix, test matches, the London Marathon and Wimbledon. People found new ways to train and stay fit, from running marathons on their balconies to cycling the equivalent of three 12-hour shifts in the NHS, all to raise money. This tiny virus is only one point of a micrometre, one millionth of a metre. It infected one person, who infected two, and a chain reaction was set in motion. As some became many, the rate of infection rose exponentially. It became clear that the only way to give the healthcare system the ability to cope was to lock down in an effort to flatten the curve. But the many has continued to spread. And soon, the whole world got infected. People were getting stressed about not being able to get to the hairdressers to get their roots done. Goats were taking over, whales, and the canals of Venice now have fish and dolphins and swans. Perhaps the climate change protests that started with the schoolgirl were actually right. Maybe the virus is not the real killer, but the human race killing the planet. And as we have considered our future, it was one man connected to our past that reminded us of our fighting spirit – 1,000 became 8 million and finally turned into over 30 million. His efforts were rewarded with raf RAFI pass and he became the oldest person to get a number one record and a well-deserved tap on the shoulder from the Queen. The country celebrated VE Day with socially distanced tea parties and a wartime fighting spirit rained down through the sunshine. The lockdown happened over a few weeks, but the lift is going to take months, if not years. Where the virus killed, the lockdown saved many lives, but there were also a greater level of unintended but as yet unidentified harm that has been caused. There seems to have been a loss of continuity as to why the lockdown was required in the first place to ensure the capacity for the health service. We managed that and we were not overwhelmed and we have created additional capacity in the Nightingale and Louisa Jordan hospitals, should there be a second wave. Much as there has been loss and heartache, there has also been an incredible amount of good. Is there a way to keep all that has been positive about this surreal experience as we ease into this lift? Can we cultivate this rediscovery of local community and combine that with the togetherness of these new virtual communities? As the scientists and the politicians start to work out the details of the lift society, needs to think about how we remember and how we, as a society, learn the lessons of all of this. To decide what we really want our present and our future to look like. There will be memorials to the dead. Global organisations will reconsider their priorities, efforts and philanthropy will continue to lay the foundations for the future. 35 years after Band-Aid, the culture of celebrity galvanising the nation still exists to raise money for a relief effort. But this time has also been a magnifying glass on the inequalities of health, education and social justice. It has become a pressure cooker for protests highlighting that while we may all have the same 86,400 seconds, it is the environment into which we are born and the opportunities inherited from our ancestors that is definitely not equal. The ability to spend those seconds is not equitable, and while most of society is born at the start of a 100 metres race, there are a few that are born inches away from the finish line, while far too many have not even had the chance to enter the arena. Just a short couple of months ago, I was enjoying what I thought was a pretty good life. I could travel essentially where I wanted. I could buy most things Easily if I if I had to queue for more than a few minutes I became frustrated. I had instant access online to almost anything. I just needed to click and pay. The fourth industrial revolution, with all of its convenience and immediate gratification, allows us to live the life we lead. Lockdown has given us all the time to pause and reflect. It has also given the planet time to take a giant breath. Perhaps the greatest memorial of all would be for us to reset, to work out how we positively atone for the decisions of our ancestors, abuse and exploitation of fellow humans and the planet. Twenty years ago, my father and mentor left me the legacy of his love, wisdom and kindness. Care for those who cannot. Be open to new challenges and the possibilities they bring. Always have an inquiring mind and learn the lessons of the past and the present to make the future better. Remember, you have a responsibility to use your talent to make things great. Don't waste it. And above all, always have hope. So what do we think the legacy of all this should be? Never before has the world had the chance to have a global pause. Perhaps the answer to the question of what our future should be is not the responsibility of the politicians. Maybe they really are just the servants of society. They are the ones who implement the answer. Maybe society should use this time of pause and reflection to see what impact our individual lives have had. Collectively, by committing to not going straight back to life as it was BL before lockdown, society as a whole has this one unique opportunity to reset for our present and for the next generation's future. Those who have lost loved ones will need support. Instead of the inevitable finger-pointing that has started and comes with the benefits of hindsight, let us be reminded of the greatest lessons of our teachers, how to learn from events. How do we practically turn the newfound respect for all types of key workers, from a clap for carers into something fundamentally more practical and sustainable? This is a challenge that must be risen to And practical help and support is also needed for those who, despite being catastrophically affected by the economic crisis, still played their part and did their bit to sustain the nation. And then let's party. We will need a massive party after all of this. Let's have a series of celebrations around the country and around the world, bring together all those talented everyday heroes with their celebrity idols to say thank you and to celebrate the life and talents of all of us. In a career that spans a decade as a consultant orthopaedic surgeon, working both in the National Health Service and the private sector, I've had the privilege of meeting and treating fascinating individuals from all walks of life, from single mums and factory workers to actors, business leaders and politicians, with the occasional lord and lady along the way this moment in time has brought fear but also hope and most importantly an intense desire for change. It's up to society, not politicians, not governing bodies and not the media to decide what our collective future should be. You can follow Songbirds and Sirens via Facebook, Twitter or on Instagram. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. If you would like to find out more or if you would like to contribute to the conversation, Please get in touch.